Hello, this is Opera Unbound, a podcast that breaks the barriers between opera singers and the audience. We will cover the process, challenges, stereotypes, and inspirations associated with opera. If you like the content that we're putting out and you'd love to see more, make sure you subscribe to our channel as well as share it with all your friends. Alrighty, so today, like we mentioned, we're going to be talking about operas that have nothing to do with love. Because... Love stories are everywhere in not only opera, but also every basic medium that we intake, right? Some of these other stories don't get as much play, pun intended, and uh, we wanted to highlight some of them. And Rachel came up with some really good categories, and so we'll just talk a little bit about each one of these categories, maybe a few shows in each. We'll go into depth on five or six or so of them and then just kind of list off some others. So where do you want to start first? Probably what most people think of when they think of stories that aren't going to be necessary about love is going to be the comedy, right? Okay, yeah. I chose to talk about Falstaff, which in a way has a love element to it, but the overarching storyline is... um, (laughs) about punishing Falstaff for being uh, such a jerk. So in Falstaff by Verdi, the knight Sir John Falstaff seeks to seduce two married women in order to steal money and have a little fun. He sends a letter to both Alice Ford and Meg Page. Both the women are shocked that this person would expect them to swoon and be amused by them. the letter. What Falstaff doesn't know is they're pretty good friends, so uh, they're both, like, gossiping about him, like, oh my god, he sent me this letter. Wait, I got a letter, too. And then they're like, no, 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 no. And they compare the letters. Oh, oh, we have to humiliate him. This is just such a ripe moment, you know? Yeah. So (laughs) Alice's husband, Ford, has discovered Falstaff's plan and isn't aware that the women are going to prank him. So he believes that he is being betrayed or sorry, not portrayed, betrayed. Mm -hmm. And so he's got like his own plot of revenge. So there's like multiple plots that coincide during the entire opera. Very entertaining. Mm -hmm. And uh, Falstaff is at the center of all the chaos and mixed communication. To think that you can get away with something like this is just such a total, not only dick move, but kind of a dude thing. Like, here here he is, this guy, he's like, oh yeah, I'm totally smarter than these women. They'll never know. Also, this is, uh, Falstaff, if I remember correctly, is not just like this really good looking, suave guy that really probably could pull it off. He actually is, is a heavier set gentleman to say to say it nicely and so you you don't expect necessarily i'm not saying that if you're bigger you can't be charming or whatever but if you're gonna go vis-a-vis you're not gonna expect someone like falstaff to be able to pull something like this off yeah and i mean this was written this was written by shakespeare a different time period where we as humans probably weren't as kind to each other and yeah so falstaff is usually either played by a larger person or put into what we call fat suit yeah as i mentioned it's based on a play by shakespeare uh, the married wives of windsor and in the play there's actually a couple differences between the two stories Um, but the biggest difference is that they actually play one more trick on falstaff than they do in the opera i don't know why they decided to cut it out because i I don't. I guess it doesn't make a difference either way. But oh, okay. I kind of like pranks that they play. 
But in the end, Falstaff has been fooled by them. They all laugh together about it. He even says, you know, who laughs last laughs the best. That is true. It's a really, really entertaining opera. Um, has great ensemble music. Uh, I think most people who are opera aficionados know the famous Falstaff uh, fugue at the end. Tutto e mando e borlo. Mm-hmm. But there's other great music in it. I think uh, the other pretty famous piece is Nanetta's aria, when she's pretending to be a fairy, mm-hmm. queen of the fairies. Anything else you can think of out of there that's musically really popular? Uh, no, not that I can think of off the top of my head that you haven't already mentioned. If I if I remember correctly, this is actually Verdi's last opera that he wrote. He was really in good form for himself. Yeah, yeah. And it's a great show. Sorry, he didn't write many comedies either. No, no, definitely not. Let's see, I'm trying to think what the other ones would be. I think really this is the only one of, of like the ones that everybody really knows or that are performed on a somewhat regular basis. I can't think of any others. That's our first stop off. So like I said, it has an element of love in the fact that John Falstaff is, you know, trying to seduce these two women. And then there's a little tiny love story between Nanetta and Fenton. Mm -hmm. But it's not a mean plot. Now, uh, another comedy that we wanted to talk about is The Impresario, as many of us call it. But it is Mozart's little short opera called Der Schauspiel Director. This is a really, really great show. And it, as somebody who likes adapting things, there's so many really wonderful things you could do with this. Because let's just talk about the basics of the plot. Is It is a show about a person wanting to put on a new opera and they're trying to find singers to put it on. And the problem, though, for... Frank, who's the impresario, is that uh, he doesn't really have a lot of money to pay people what they're worth. Gee, this sounds oddly familiar. Um, and, uh, and so he's trying to basically get the best talent he can for the, the budget that he has. And it's basically a diva off, right? We have three main singers. We have... Madame Hertz, so Hart. I love these names too. Madame Hertz, so Hart. Mademoiselle Zilberklang, so silver-toned, right? So beautiful sounds. And then Monsieur Folgosong, so it sounds like a bird. And it's mostly between the two women, Hertz and Zilberklang. And they're fighting back and forth and like saying, no, 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 I should have it, I should have it. And then eventually they do this trio and, of course, the tenor is the one who gets the biggest fee. Kel Surprise. Yeah. And, yeah, so it goes along those lines. And, you know, at the end of the show, they basically say, hey, every artist strives for glory. And we're all trying to do the best we can, essentially. The one thing that's interesting about it is if you go online and you try and find the show, you can find the music, but there's a lot of dialogue that can be added to it. And most of the recordings that I found, they were all like, basically they wrote a new translation or they just wrote the dialogue part and then saying what Mozart wrote in German. There's some really cool stuff out there. And you can just see how this would be a show that, side note, Rachel and I were talking before the podcast and I was like, man, we should do something, like redo this thing as this one particular thing that's really popular on 
TV inside. I don't want to give away too many ideas. It uh, it would be just so easy. Yeah, we're trying to make money here. Yeah, we're trying to make money here. Can't. This is my intellectual property, and I will come after you like you will not believe. <laughs> so anyway, I also read that they often put in other Mozart music because they're already putting in dialogue that's technically not there. Okay, well then they add in other. You know, uh, Mozart music, which he can get pretty flashy. And there are moments in this show where the soprano goes all the way up to a high F. Mm, and wow. so got to have some people with some real chops and some real range, which really opens up the possibilities to really make it a high-flying show. Well, hopefully uh, we'll have our own production of it and maybe uh, maybe we'll see a, a rebirth of interest in this opera. The the one recording that I listened to, and this is with the dialogue, is only 38 minutes. Perfect. You can easily just do that or uh, extend it even longer because I try to do an hour. but Yeah, or you could pair it with something else too. Always that possibility. Totally. Okay, so I only have two other comedies that I wanted to mention. I think the first one most people are aware of, and we've talked about it extensively, is uh, Puccini's Gianni Schicchi. Mm-hmm. Sum up. Basically, a family is fighting over the will of Buozo, who's died in their family, and who's going to get what part of his property. Spoiler alert, they get fooled by Johnny Skeeky, an outside person, and he takes everything. Mm-hmm. Then there's The Nose by Shostakovich, and this, I kind of want to see this because I think it sounds great. Mm-hmm. The plot is about a St. Petersburg official whose nose leaves his face and develops a life of its own. <laughs> yeah, if you... <laughs> If anybody wants to go online and check out the promotional materials for this show, I think they did it at the Met like two or three years ago. It's it's basically a person, in the promo stuff at least, running around with like all you see is their legs and they're inside this massive nose. Like it's so yeah. funny. Yeah, I mean it's so ridiculous. And I, and I mean I think we're just like this is kind of a perfect time to do kind of like those – avant-garde comedies mm-hmm. that's people really need that sort of relief in today's world if mm-hmm. someone out there wants to put it on now's the time you knows it oh god we we should probably cut that. oh no oh no no we're keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> all right do we want to do dramas or history next uh let's do history for 300 all right my historic piece is Dead Man Walking. Now, when a lot of people think, well, historic piece, we got to have, like, uh, you know, we got Anna Bolena and, you know, the, the Tudor opera is about the British royalty and all these other things. Well, Dead Man Walking, which we have referenced a few times on the show, it's by Jake Heggie, and it's a true story. It's about a guy named Joseph Desrochers, and he lived in the South in the, I think it was the 60s or 70s, And he and his brother went to a bar one night, and they ended up getting drunk. Unlike most people, sleeping it off or going home, they ended up meeting these, like, teenagers that were making out as they were walking walking home. And then, well, uh, instead of just keeping walking and whatever, they decided to uh, murder them. And so what ends up happening is we have this story about Desrochers and his brother gets off because they think that Desrochers did it and he's on death row. During this time, he is meeting with Sister Helen Prejean uh, and she is assigned to him to help be his spiritual 
advisor, but also, if possible, to get a confession out of him. He writes letters at first, and then she eventually visits him and you know they go back and forth they have their interactions there's also a trial that happens where we see the parents of the the children that were killed and them airing their frustrations we have some scenes with de roche's uh family and how his mom was like he was a good boy you know and just made bad decisions eventually you fast forward towards the end of the show where they have him literally executed on stage with the uh, electric chair. It's a really, really powerful piece. It has great music. It's kind of jazzy in parts. And there's even a really cool scene between Desrochers and uh, Sister Prejean where he asks her, you know, has, has she ever gone to concerts or whatever? And she saw Elvis when he was, you know, big and fat and all this stuff. And they have this moment where they sing a little bit of Jailhouse Rock and there's also his big aria that I really like. He starts it out. It's when they tell him the time and the date that he's going to die. And he's doing push-ups. You know, he's just working out in his cell. And so if you ever do this show, you know, they talk about how there's, uh, you know, you got to look a certain way, supposedly, in certain roles. Well, this person at least has to be able to do, yeah, I think it's like 30 push-ups and have that not affect you're singing so there's a little bit of a physical element there and then my other favorite part of it is it starts off you hear sister prejean singing this really beautiful melody by herself that's a hymn he will gather us around all around he will gather us around and she sings it and Eventually, it turns into this scene with the other nuns and the children. Okay. Fast forward, you hear the heart monitor at the end of the show go flat. And then she sings it again, but not cheerful at all. It's very slow, you know, because she's in the room, right, when he gets executed. And it's just, it's, I'm getting chills right now just even talking about it. It's hauntingly chilling and also beautiful, at the same time. So if you get a chance to to look it up online, um, it was premiered at Houston Grand with Joyce DiDonato as Sister Prejean and I think Philip Cutlip as De Rocher. I know there's an album on Spotify if you want to check it out there, but it's a really, really cool piece. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, also chose a uh, very tragic opera. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Dialogue of the Carmelites by Pulak. Yeah. Executions are uh, definitely on the menu today. (laughs) (laughs) I've got them on the list. I've got them on the list. (laughs) Uh, So Dialogue of the Carmelites is set during the French Revolution, during the years of terror. The story is focused around how the entire order of the Carmelites is martyred. Mm -hmm. And the main characters we have, and I'll say main in quotations because... This song is so heavily ensemble slash chorus driven. Is Blanche and her brother. Blanche is the daughter of a chevalier. Is very afraid of what's going on in Paris. So she seeks the safety of uh, a convent and becomes one of the sisters of the Carmelites. She is warned by Mother Marie that this isn't a place for refuge. And she, she kind of sees the writing on the wall. 
the prioress, the new prioress, is, is also telling them that the days of peace are over and that they must continue their lives, of, but they must continue their lives of prayer. You know, you get a real microcosm of what's happening in the convent. You see a few little pictures from the outside. Blanche's brother comes to see her in secret before he flees the country. Mother Marie tells the nuns that, you know, they must do their duty to God and they must not flee. That they must entrust that God has what is best for them in store, even if their last moment on life might not be so generous to them. Mm-hmm. Blanche flees because she she can't come to grasp with this, and she returns home, but she finds that her father has already been taken to the guillotine. And um, when she returns, the sisters are imprisoned and awaiting for execution. Blanche decides or comes to the realization that she wishes to be with the sisters and joins them upon their their time to be executed. And the last scene of this is probably the most famous moment out of this opera when everybody, as the nuns are going to be executed, they sing Salve Regina, mm-hmm. Save Us, Mother Mary. Oh, God. I was in this opera and... It was so hard to walk up to the guillotine every night and sing this piece. Every night it was a struggle because you just imagine what the nuns were going through. We all make it off stage and then we're like secretly crying behind stage trying to do it quietly. <laughs> to not yeah. interfere with what's going on stage. Yeah. Most productions, they, you know, they use that guillotine sound. So every single time it's whap. <laughs> and then there's one less voice on stage. Jeez, it's a little over the top, but it, I, I mean, mean, it's 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 heavy, but the music is just so beautiful. Like I said, this ending is so amazing, and um, Lee Duan's uh, the the newly appointed prioress. She has a, a beautiful aria while they're imprisoned. It's just such amazing mm-hmm. music, and it it leaves you wanting more more of the music when you're done with the opera. Yeah, which Poulenc, depending on what you're doing of his, that's. He gets kind of, it's not, well, sometimes it's almost atonal, but it's not always the most, let's just say, user-friendly if you're not familiar with his language, musically speaking. Mm -hmm. Isn't that like the coolest, one of the coolest things about, it's not just opera, musical theater does it too, but like when you have this, where the music and what is being said, well, they're diametrically opposite of them like this is such a heavy story like you're saying but the music is just so heart-wrenching and beautiful so moving it's really hard to not feel what they're they're going through because we all know somebody if it's not us that is deeply religious and they you know they believe what they believe and they hope for a better life even though what they may be going through, like you said, is just terrible. And uh, yeah, Salve Regina is is a very powerful, powerful hymn in in the um, in the Catholic world. As somebody who sings at a Catholic church, I mean, it's just perfectly done by Poulenc. Definitely check that out. Um, and, you know, if you can't bring yourself to watch a, a production of it, just at least listen to that ending chorus. Mm-hmm. It is really really quite moving moving on to some other historical non-love based operas that we wanted to mention what's hot right now is steve jobs yeah 
I think the really interesting thing about this opera is it's not a linear plot. It jumps um, kind of all over the place in, mm-hmm. in Steve Jobs' life. Like you have when he's with Wozniak, you know, developing Apple. And then, you know, it jumps to when he was in college and after he's dead. Just it when he's working at the tight of apple it kind of jumps all over the place but it wasn't it wasn't done in a jarring way it worked for me when i watched it Mm -hmm. another unique thing about steve jobs is that there's the use of electronic music in the production i think all the productions are using the same set so there's these like modular um pieces that move around on the stage and they're on tracks not controlled by people so the cast on stage has to know like when they're moving and where they're moving and be very precise in that yeah (laughs) run into these walls yeah, that's that wouldn't be good. Also wanted to mention Einstein on the Beach, Malcolm X, Macbeth by Verdi is um, a opera that is not about love. And then there's Troubled Island by uh, William Grant Still, which is about a uh, leader in Haiti who was being overthrown. Also wanted to mention Silent Night. Yeah, that piece is really cool. Which is about the ceasefire in World War One. I. I don't know if you have anything to add about that one. Uh, not really. The one thing I will say, though, that's really cool, Kevin Putz is the composer. I like how, yeah, the majority of it is in English, but there are certain moments where he has the the characters sing the in the language of the country that they're from. Like one of the main baritone arias, he happens to be a French guy. And so he sings in French um, this aria about, if I remember correctly, it's about missing home and he's looking at the photos of mm-hmm. his of his family and stuff like that. So it's really it's really yeah. cool. That he incorporated all of that. The opera is multilingual. It has the Scottish um, side, it has the French side, and it has the German side. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, it, yeah, it does. The main story does follow three kind of major characters. It's quite remarkable. I had the chance to see it in Fort Worth uh, in 2014. Isn't that where it premiered? I think it was, and it, it was just it was so fantastic. I. I loved it. I'm so glad that I went. Definitely worth the ticket when it comes to town. Oh, also, we didn't mention um, Nixon in China. Oh, yeah, that's true. Which I think is is self-explanatory. When Nixon first went to China, was the first president to go there. And um, meeting with Mao and all that that entailed. That's by John Adams, right? Oh, you know what? Speaking of John Adams, I thought of another one. That is in that same lane, Death of Klinghoffer. Yes, mm-hmm. Death yeah. of Klinghoffer. Yeah. Yeah, that. Geez, that's a that's a tough one. For those of you who aren't familiar with that show, it's based on a story where I think it was a cruise ship, cruise yeah. ship somewhere. It got overtaken by people, and they ended up throwing off this guy Klinghoffer, who was in a wheelchair off the boat. Just terrible, terrible. All right, on to dramas. All righty. Well, for me, one of my favorite dramas is by Carlisle Floyd, and it's called Susanna. To some people, Susanna is basically the first real feminist opera. And I I was fortunate enough to be able to do the show in a condensed version uh, a few years ago. Actually, Rachel helped us set up a performance at one of her friends' house. And it's just such a beautiful, beautiful piece. And what it it takes place 
in Appalachia and in the religious revival period of our country. And you have these two, this brother and sister, Susanna Polk and her brother. Oh, geez, I'm forgetting his name right now. (laughs) Anyway, and they're very backwoods, not very educated people. And Susanna goes into town and they have this traveling preacher that shows up. Um, His name is the Reverend Olin Blitch. Like I said, he's a traveling preacher and he's just going to be there real quick to basically have a big revival, baptize people and move on. The problem, though, is that he starts to like Susanna um, and he dances with her at the beginning of the show in the big town square where everybody's dancing. And then she goes back and she has her friend Little Bat who has a crush on her, but he it's it, uh, he he's like... 13 or something like that and she's 17 18 so it's one of those that yeah he has a crush but nothing's gonna happen uh and then she sings the really famous ain't it a pretty night aria which is my favorite american aria for soprano it's just so beautiful mm-hmm. anyway Lobat leaves when her brother comes in sam that's his name and then that scene ends then after that susanna like i said she lives out in the country She's going and she's taking a bath in the river, okay? When she does this, however, some of the elders of the church happen to be walking through the woods and see her, and they accuse her of basically trying to tempt men, and it's all her fault. She's just being a, mm-hmm. a slut, uh, if you know what I mean. And Yeah, the, the classic victim point. Yeah, exactly, which, of course, she was completely innocent. She was just out there bathing like she's done a billion times before. They just happened to walk by. So now they're trying to get her to repent the rest of the show. They have the revival scene, which is a really, really cool, big scene for Blitch. And then, you know, he, of course, tries to collect money at the beginning. He does his sermon. And at the end, he's like, hey, well, you guys come and uh, get baptized. And then he singles out Susanna because she did go to it. He was like, hey, you need to come and repent. And she basically refuses, refuses goes back home okay blitch then goes to her house tries to get her to repent again she's like i have nothing to repent of why would i do that and she's sick and tired because he's not only trying to get her to repent but she's heard the rumors and all the people in the town are trying to go after her and she just kind of breaks down blitch like a total d-bag tries to take advantage of her and actually does and so he sings this song or Aria, you know, I'm a lonely man, Susanna, and every now and then, I just gotta have somebody. And he's trying to be like, hey, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I'm a nice guy. You're a nice girl. You have needs, too, is kind of the the aura around it. And But really, it's just he wants to, you know, take advantage of her. He does, but the next morning, he does try to repent to God, but of course, God's like, Screw you, dude. You're a preacher, and you did this terrible thing to a teenager. Yeah, I'm not going to talk to you, okay? And he's trying to beg, beg, all this stuff. God doesn't respond. And then Susanna, like a smart person, is like, you know what? Now I have this on him. I'm going to get this entire town off my back. And she basically tries to blackmail him. And he has to go in front of the elders and say, hey, let's let's move on. Let's, Let's get past this whole thing and they can't really do it and then eventually Susanna goes home and she's distraught by everything Sam comes back from a trip notices Susanna is um 
upset and she says, yeah, Blitch took advantage of me. And spoiler alert, the show ends with not only Sam killing Blitch, but then the whole town coming after Sam and Susanna. And Susanna's at her house, in my in my view, as she's singing all this stuff, even though it doesn't expressly say it in the libretto, she's got a gun pointing at all of them, being like, bring it on, I have nothing to fear. It's a really powerful show because it's it's about a girl, really, not even a woman, a girl who says, you know what, I'm not going to put up with your shit anymore, okay? I'm going to take this thing into my own hands. I'm in the right here. You're not. You need to get your backwards ways of looking at things and actually look at the truth. And so it's it's a really, really great piece. It's one of my favorites in all of opera. I'm going to talk about a new opera by uh, composed by Tesori and the libretto is written Janine, sorry, Janine Tesori and the libretto is written by Tezwell uh, Thompson and that is Blue mm-hmm. which is an opera about a police violence in America which I think we are all aware of and how bad it's gotten. Mm-hmm. This takes place in Harlem and a couple it begins a couple celebrates the birth of their firstborn, a boy and the mother worries for her son's future in today's America. And the father wrestles with his role as a police officer. When the unimaginable happens, the son is killed by a white officer. They have to face every family's worst fear. And especially families who are black. This affects them disproportionately in our country, unfortunately. I think that this opera um, is probably going to make really big showing in the next season and probably seasons to follow. It was commissioned by Glimmer Glass in in 2019 and um, was supposed to premiere at WNO and Lyric Opera Chicago, but because of the pandemic, those productions were put off. So I'm definitely looking forward to seeing this and hopefully that it has an impact on anybody who views it. And I just wanted to make sure we mentioned that one. Um, some other ones that are on my list in the drama category, Sword Angelica by Puccini, mm-hmm. kind of a more standard repertoire, not about love. And per se, as a normal romance, it is about a mother's love for her child, the consequences of having a child out of wedlock during the, the time period that this was written. Or not written, but set in. It was set during kind of like the Renaissance period. It wasn't something that was accepted at that time. We also have Billy Bud by Britain, which is about a seaman who is impressed into service aboard the HMS Pelly Potent in 1797, um, when the Royal Navy was reeling from two major mutinies and was threatened by the revolutionary French Republic's uh, military ambitions. There's also Of Mice and Men. Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot about that one. And you had put on the list Sweeney Todd. Yeah, definitely Sweeney. We've talked about how some people think it's a musical theater piece. Others think it's an opera. But yeah, definitely Sweeney. Hansel and Gretel is another one. Well, I put I put Hansel and Gretel under our, our adventures less fantasy. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Peter Grimes, Die Tote Stadt. Um, Nabucco by Verdi. Mm-hmm. And, oh, I can't remember this. Uh, the Regina Opera. It's by Blitz, Mark Blitzen, I think is his name. It's a newer opera. Oh, and As One. Oh, As One, of which course, Which yeah. is um, 
about a transgender woman who discovers her gender identity and learns to love herself in a world where she's not accepted. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, that's one that um, I really, really wish I could have seen when it was in Seattle. Uh, because it's uh, it's such a cool piece yeah. uh, from what I've heard and obviously relevant to a lot of people. And it's just really, I like how, oh, what's her name that wrote it? It's not Lori Laitman. Shoot, I can't remember. But um, I like how they use... It is by Laura Kaminsky and the librettos by Mark Campbell. I just like how I can't remember if it's female to male or male to female, but like it starts off as one singer and then it transitions pun intended into the other singer. Yeah, it's it's male to female. It is male to female. Thank you. Yeah, it's it seems like a really really cool show that everybody should to give a a viewing should I say. Anyway. Okay, our final category which we won't really go into any of these in great detail, but we wanted to make sure that we listed off these uh, adventure/fantasy. Mhm. So, we've talked about Hansel and Gretel before, and that's definitely on this list. And we have Parsifal by Wagner, which is the story of the Holy Grail. Although I think I'd rather see Spam a lot, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love Wagner and I, I greatly listen to it, but I, I, I think I'll go for Spam a lot to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've got Dr. Faust, The Nightingale by Stravinsky, which is kind of like a, a stere- fairy tale about this emperor who is gifted a nightingale. L'Enfant et les Sortilèges by Ravel, which is about an unruly child who talks to all of the things that are in his room. They like come alive and, and chide him. Bluebeard's Castle, which we've talked about extensively in our spooky opera playlist. Mm-hmm. The Tenderland, which is about Lori leaving the farm, the farm life, and finding something bigger. It's basically, if you guys have ever seen The Ranch on Netflix, uh-huh. there's a lot of similarities to that show and The Tenderland about Lori wanting to leave and a grandpa that's really old school farming. Like, there's this one quintet, and it starts off with. The uh, grandpa's yelling slash singing, bums, bums, no good, dirty bums. And you're like, okay, if you're thinking of a person who is a farmer that's less, we'll just say less enlightened, Mm -hmm. you know, that's totally a line that they would throw out there. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it was written in a different time. So you just got to be a little bit aware of some of the language stuff aside from just uh copeland wasn't trying to make them sound as if they're the most educated people out there so yeah a pretty new opera is flight by jonathan dove and it tells the story of a group of desperate travelers who meet at an airport with shared departure plans but hidden personal desires it's all, all occurs during like one day in an airport i think it's on seattle opera season this year yeah it is it, digital off yeah it's next actually and then there's a marco polo opera which i was like oh that's cool do they just yell at each other and then repeat it <laughs> is that basically the gist of the show oh uh, well no, I don't know. It's about... Oh, it takes place in a pool, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's about Marco Polo and the Silk Road, of course. Oh, Silk that one. So oh, okay. Sorry. My bad. And uh, <laughs> the final one on this list is Mark uh, Moby Dick by Jake Heggie, which is... Oh, yeah. 
obviously about the famous story where one man's obsession leaves a lethal wake of destruction. Captain Ahab is bent on killing that fabled white whale. Mm-hmm. He scours the ocean without regard for the lives of the men who serve him. That's our episode on operas that aren't about love. Yeah, it's about time they got some recognition. Yes. We don't need love in our lives all the time, thrown at our faces. You know, I, this this whole thing was kind of sparked by, I watch a lot of sci-fi, and I'm... I am greatly mm. disappointed that there is very little sci-fi in the opera world. That seems like an untapped genre. Totally. Just think of it, Lost in Space as an opera. Yeah. I And you think of some of the, the classical music that's been put out, especially the mid-50s and all that stuff, it's like Twilight Zone-y. Like there, you're mm-hmm. telling me there isn't somebody who, could, who couldn't write that? Or yeah, who... certainly. Yeah, I think there's there's a whole part of opera that just hasn't been explored yet. I see what you did there. You're exploring the final frontier. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> yes. Yes, okay. You know, if you're a composer out there and you uh, need an idea, go look at some great sci-fi and write an opera based on that. You know what they need to make? They need to make a Captain Kirk opera, but it needs to be a comedic opera, and whoever plays Kurt has to be like Bill Shatner and be like, uh, be like, and there I was. I was on the planet, observing all the. It has to be all the. There cannot be a single fluid rhythm in anything that he sings. Just, just to prove a point. Listen to that. Yeah, that it might be overkill. But it would be hilarious. Or maybe it's just me that thinks it would be hilarious. Well, I hope you enjoyed our um, discussion today. And, you know, maybe you've got some new operas to check out. There you go. And uh, just as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe, like, share with all of your friends. Blow up this episode by sharing it everywhere. Yes, please share. All right. Bye. Later. Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. For more information about the podcast or for extras, check out our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash opera unbound. Ciao.